Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house, household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Father in heaven, on this uh, first Sunday of Advent, we come before you um, remembering the advent of Jesus, looking forward uh, to the second advent, the second coming of Jesus, um, but also uh, very aware well, I ask you that you would make us aware of the present adventing of Jesus, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ is present among us. Uh, captivate our attention. Father, um, these are important matters that you want to speak to us about. Will you make us attentive? Um, don't let me see, say stupid things and grant that if I do, that they might be forgotten, but that your word would be clear uh, and that your word would be heavy upon our hearts and that your spirit would grant us a deep freedom and show us Jesus and our need for him and the hope he gives us for his glory, amen. Friends, um, if you would uh, turn back to page 10 and look at that Ephesians reading. Um, so uh, all, all service so far, we've been saying that uh, it's Advent. So for the Christian calendar, Happy New Year. Bum, ba, da, bum, yay. Um, and Advent, the word means arrival or the coming. Um, and it's a time of year when we, as we've already discussed, we think about Jesus's arrival his advent, um, his first advent 2,000 years ago, his second advent, that's what the gospel reading was, was about. We don't know when that's going to happen, but we are to stay awake. And in advent, we ask questions like when and how. Uh, when did Jesus arrive the first time? How did he arrive? Uh, things like that. But we also, not only do we ask um, when and how questions, we also ask why questions. Why did Jesus Advent. Why did he come? Why did he arrive? What was Jesus's aim in showing up? What was uh, Jesus's mission or his objective that led him to be born in a manger and to be executed on a cross? Why? 
And if you look at our Ephesians reading, um, it's helpful. It's not a usual Advent reading, but it Paul, who wrote, wrote Ephesians, gives us one reason for Jesus's Advent, the why Jesus came, that might possibly surprise us. If you look at verse 17, speaking of Jesus, the Apostle Paul writes, Jesus came. There's a word that connotes Advent. Jesus came. Why did he come? And he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. So uh, Jesus came, his advent was so that he would proclaim peace. Now, my guess is that that is not very surprising. However, I want you to see that there's bite in this reading. Jesus, our passage tells us, came to give peace right into the epicenter of humanity's most intractable hostilities. Hostilities. I take it from the passage, but think about the word hostility for a minute. My guess is um, that a lot of us are reasonably familiar with the idea of hostility right now. Uh, at, at the very least, there's a lot of tension, is there not? And a lot of us are very aware of the tension or the hostilities that we are experiencing in our nation, in our society right now. I mean, there's the obvious things like, like the political divide. I mean, the election's over and yet in another way, the political divides are very, very deep. There's kind of breathtaking, a little nerve wracking. There's some serious hostility around. And we all know that there's deep uh, and frightening and disturbing um, racial tensions and hostilities and so on and so forth. And, and for some of us on this call, um, those racial tensions and the injustice associated with that has been part of your daily life for years and years and years and perhaps all of your life. And for others of us, we're just kind of uh, in this year becoming aware of the depth of those realities and those tensions and those hostilities in ways that we have not seen previously. But in any event, for a lot of us, there's a sense of almost hopelessness when we see some of the level and the depth and the pervasiveness of some of these tensions and these hostilities. And you could talk about the politics, you can talk about racial injustice, but you could talk about a lot of other hostilities as well. Those are just two that come Come to the fore right away. Some of us, uh, uh, some of us might have been happy that you weren't with family this past week because of the tensions that are endemic within your family structures. For others of us, it's not the same, but nevertheless, hostilities are all around us. We live in a time when hostilities and tensions and conflict seem to be popping up all around us. And that's part of the reason why this reading is so helpful and such a gift. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians from prison. And he's writing to a church or a group of churches around Ephesus that are majority Gentile. And in this reading, Paul says Gentiles. It's as if Paul says, Gentiles, you need to remember your story. And in particular, you need to remember, Gentiles, how hostility used to dominate your life and your experience. It's as if Paul says to the Gentiles, you need to remember how Jesus Christ entered into that hostility that used to dominate your life, how Jesus advented into that hostility, and he advented or arrived into that uh, hostility in order to destroy it and to replace it with a peace that you could never have achieved any other way, says Paul to the Gentiles in our reading. And I want to tell you, Emmanuel, that that is God's word to us today. 
all this year uh, in various different ways, we've been seeing that the Bible teaches us that we have to meet God from the vantage point of the wreckage of this world. I hope you've noticed that theme this year. And today, this reading is adding some detail there. This reading is telling us that we have to meet Jesus right in the middle of the hell of the hostilities of our time and of our experience. And we've got to see how Jesus's advent and his arrival achieves a peace beyond anything that we can possibly hope for without him. And to say it even more simply, I want to show you that Jesus's advent is an advent of peace into our most intractable hostilities. Let me show you what I mean. Um, take, a, uh, take a look at the reading. Look at verse 11. Paul writes, therefore, Gentiles, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, just pause there for a second, because right there you can see that on the surface, Paul is addressing hostility between the Israelite community and the Gentile community. So the word uncircumcision, it's there in quotation marks, um, that was a relatively pejorative term for Gentiles. And the word circumcision was a word that a word of pride for the people of Israel. But then in verse 12, Paul goes underneath the insults, so to speak, and gives a hint of the root cause of the hostility between these two groups. Take a look at verse 12. Paul continues, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, let me step back and I want to fill in a backstory that'll help us understand that verse. And the backstory has three scenes. Here's the first scene. The first scene opens up and you're right at the beginning of the Bible at when God created humanity. At the beginning of the Bible, God creates humanity and at that moment in Genesis chapters one, two, three, I'm kind of glossing it all together. God creates and designs humanity for himself. And, and part of the de design specifications for humanity is that humanity was supposed to live in a close bond of love, a close bond of love with God, but then also a close bond of love with each other. Those two bonds, a bond with God, a bond with one another, those were related, and those are the two key relationships that humanity was designed for. But if you know the beginning of the Bible, you know that everything goes wrong when sin happens. And I won't go into the whole story, but sin does many, many things. But sin is when we, so to speak, cancel God or ghost God or alienate ourselves from God. And when that bond with God is broken, there's an unexpected but inevitable result. And the unexpected and inevitable result is that when that bond with God is broken and we're alienated from God, it inevitably leads to a brokenness with our bond with other people. We Alienation from God leads to alienation from other humans and other human groups. Because when we alienate ourselves from God, we alienate ourselves from love, the source of love. When we alienate ourselves from the source of love, we alienate ourselves from other people. It's inevitable. Now, what that means, and what's important for our passage, is that hostility and alienation from God will inevitably lead to intractable hostility and alienation towards others, which tells us that the hostilities of our own day are nothing new. They're 
like literally as old as sin. Now, close out that first scene and open a next scene. And the second scene is when Israel has just escaped enslavement in Egypt and God and Israel are out in the desert at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai and they're getting to know each other. And there it's out in the desert at the foot of Mount Sinai, God gives Israel the law of Moses or the covenant of Moses or the commandments. Um, all those things can refer to the same thing and today they will. And the law of Moses did at least two things, more than this, but did at least two things, but could not do a third thing. The two things that it could do is the law recognized that there was still an alienation between Israel and God. And then secondly, though, the law tried to regulate that alienation between Israel and God. Let me explain what I mean. The law of Moses recognized that there was still an alienation between God and Israel. So all through the law of Moses, you get this kind of subtext that says, listen, Israel, God loves you. And at the same time, there's still a huge hostility and alienation between God and between you. And therefore, you need to not forget that that alienation exists. The law of Moses recognizes and reveals a deep alienation that continues throughout the Old Testament story between Israel and God. But on the other hand, the law of Moses also regulated that alienation. What I mean is it could never completely remove the alienation. It couldn't achieve reconciliation, but it could provide a provision so that Israelites could cautiously approach God. They could have some measure of intimacy with God, though never perfect intimacy with God. They could come close to God or near to God through the commandments and the covenant and so on. So the Old Testament law recognized or revealed the alienation that existed between Israel and God, could also regulate it so that Israel could draw near to some extent, but it could never remove the alienation. It couldn't finally bring peace between Israel and God, not perfectly. Now close that scene out. And the third scene I want you to think of for the background for this story is in Paul's own day, the first century, the Roman Empire. Because during this time, there was a growing movement of Gentiles, non-Israelites, non who are fascinated by Israel's God. And they were called God-fearers. And they're, so to speak, peering over the fence into Israel's story. And one of the things that they could see is that Israel's God was better than anything that they had in their pagan traditions. The problem was, whenever they reached out towards Israel, very often, to, at least to some extent, they slammed up against alienation. They were largely, not entirely, but largely excluded from Israelite law. They were largely cut off from the nation of Israel. And if Israel was close to God, the Gentiles seemed to be far from God, even when they were trying to draw near. And that experience amplified a sense of hopelessness within the Gentiles. But then all of it got worse. Because during this time, there was intense hostility and tension between the Israelite community and the Gentile community, and it was reaching a breaking point. Now, there was really good reason for that hostility, because the people of Israel during this time, they had been ex uh, exploited and oppressed by Gentile occupying forces for hundreds of years. And, and therefore, there was a political enmity between the people of Israel and the Gentiles that ruled over them. 
But then there was also a religious component because um, Israel's uh, religious uh, privileges and heritage could easily devolve into a sense of superiority over and against the Gentiles. Now, the Old Testament had always promised that one day, somehow, the Gentiles would be drawn near to God as well. But nevertheless, Israel, or God's promise of grace to the Gentiles someday was easy for Israel to forget when the Gentiles were Israel's enemies. And all of this was just a powder keg in Paul's day. And actually, Paul had a front seat to the tension. Because when he wrote this letter, he was under house arrest in Rome. And the reason he was under house arrest in Rome was that actually many, many, many months before this, Paul had been seen hanging out with an Ephesian Gentile in Jerusalem. And a crowd concluded that Paul had taken this Ephesian Gentile into the inner courts of the temple, which would have been a serious transgression of the Mosaic law and the law of the land. Now, Paul hadn't done this, but even the suspicion that he had taken a Gentile into the temple meant that Paul was put in jail for months and months and months, even though he was innocent. The point is, as Paul is writing this letter that we're reading, he himself is a casualty of the hostility between Israel and the Gentiles. Now, just pause there and back up. Because what I want you to see is on the one hand, there's complexity to this conflict between the Israelites and the Gentiles. But underneath the complexity, there's a single taproot cause. On the one hand, the Israelite-Gentile conflict is super complex. There's a religious aspect to it. There's a political aspect to it. There's an ethnic and cultural aspect to it. And it's helpful for us to see that many of the conflicts that afflict us today are in some ways anticipated by this conflict 2,000 years ago. But on the other hand, when you look away from the complexity and underneath it, you can see that underneath the religious aspect and underneath the political aspect and underneath the cultural ethnic aspect, there was the deep taproot core problem of alienation from God and alienation from each other that went back to the beginning. Israel's covenant with God, despite all of its formidable privileges, could not remove that alienation from God. And even the best efforts of the Gentiles' most enlightened minds could not overcome that alienation either. So the Israelite and Gentile were trapped on either side of what the Apostle Paul calls the dividing wall of hostility. And I hope all of this sounds familiar. Because there's a lot of dividing walls of hostility in our own day, are there not? And the dividing walls of hostility, these sorts of things that are rooted in alienation from God and alienation from one another, they are strong. They are hard to tear down. In fact, very often they are impossible for us to tear down. And it's not until you feel this formidable power of the dividing walls of hostility. And it's not until we can see the dividing wall of hostility at this time and in our own day until you feel the significance of those dividing walls, we're not ready for Advent. But when you feel the formidable power of the dividing walls of hostility between us, that's when you're ready to understand what Advent is all about. Why do I say that? Because of this. When Jesus arrived and when Jesus advented into our world, he came to tear that dividing wall of hostility down. 
Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I want to know, how have the Gentiles, Paul, been brought near? Well, look at verse 15. He tells us, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace. Now, what's going on there? Follow me here. Remember what we said about the Old Testament law of Moses. It did two things, but it couldn't do a third. It could reveal Israel's alienation from God. It could partially regulate Israel's alienation from God. But what it could never do is reconcile Israel's alienation from God. It could never bring Israel all the way home. And it could do even less for the Gentiles. Now, that didn't mean that the Old Testament law was bad. The Old Testament law was good. God had planned a designed obsolescence into the law itself. God had designed the law to demonstrate both to the Gentiles and to the people of Israel that they needed something more than law to reconcile them to God. The law showed them and it shows us that we need God himself to come, that we need God himself to advent towards us, that we need God himself to intervene into our lives and to reconcile us to himself. And all of that happened when Jesus Christ was born in a manger and even more when he was executed upon a cross. You know, one of the um, kind of tragic ironies about Jesus's death is that it was a moment of unity between the Gentile community and the Israelite community. At least some of their leaders it was. Because the Israelite leadership and the Gentile leadership in Jerusalem, they joined forces to kill Jesus. And so Gentile hatred came down on Jesus and, and Israelite hatred came down on Jesus. But more importantly than any of that, all human alienation from God and all the consequences of that alienation, it came down on Jesus when he died upon the cross. And that's the moment when the great reversal happened. Because as Jesus died, he took our alienation from God upon himself and it died with him on the cross. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead with the ability and the authority to give us the peace which God with God that only he knows. And that's one of the reasons, I don't know that you've noticed this, but in all the uh, accounts of Jesus's resurrection, the first thing he tells his disciples after his resurrection is peace be with you. It's one of the reasons why we talk about sharing the peace. And when Jesus said, peace be with you, he's not just saying hi, and he's not just being polite. That's often what we do, but it was deeper than that. And he's not just saying, hey, don't be afraid and don't freak out. I'm not a ghost. He's saying something deeper. He's saying, Disciples, the great purpose of my advent has been achieved, and I have purchased a peace which the law could never give. Jesus was saying to his disciples, I have reconciled you to God himself, and I have given you a true and lasting peace. But then keep going. Think about the implications. Because when Jesus killed our alienation from God, at the same moment, Jesus was also killing the root cause of our alienation from each other. Look at verse 14. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, friends, Paul's telling us that the dividing wall of hostility was crushed by the cross of Christ. 
And then he goes further, verse 15, he says, he did this, he crushed the dividing wall of hostility in order that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now look at that phrase, one new man in place of two. We could translate that as one new humanity in place of two. And the implications are huge because here's what he's saying. He's saying that when Israelites and Gentiles entrust themselves to Jesus Christ, Jesus reconciles them to God the Father. And in that same moment, Jesus joins them together in an unbreakable bond. They are bound together. They are bound together not by shared ethnicity or race, though ethnicity remains. Not by politics or language, though politics and language remain. They're bound together not by interests or profession. They're bound together because they are both of them reconciled to God. And if they have been reconciled to God, then they are family with each other even before they realize it. Remember what we said earlier. God created and designed all of us for two crucial bonds of love, a bond of love with God and a bond of love with one another. And all of that was ripped apart and twisted through sin. But now Christ has advented. Christ has come and given his life so that both those bonds can be restored. And that means that the church is to be this new community, this new humanity, this new embassy of Christ's peace in the midst of a hostile world. Now we're gonna pick up that theme and the same reading next week. But today we need to land in Advent 2020, right here and now. And friends, we all know that we, we live in a world full of hostility. And we're in a moment in, when, in which that hostility is, it's not hiding, it's, it's kind of clear and frightening. And all of this that's in this passage should lead us into Advent and should lead us towards two responses. It should humble us and it should give us hope. First of all, it should humble us. Can you see why we need to be humbled by this reading? Um, this reading tells us that Jesus died to create a church that is a haven of reconciliation, an embassy of peace in a world of hostility. Now we get sweet tastes of that, but is that the main thing that comes to your mind when you think about the church and the church in our nation? Friends, I hear a lot of lament about the state of our nation right now, and, and that's fine, that's good. Um, but it seems to me that the church uh, we get to lament for our own failures first. And you know the sins of the church, don't you? If you spend any time in the church, you don't need me to tell you what they are. And if you're new to the church, I need to tell you that the church is full of sin itself. Friends, the church has tolerated racism when it should have been vomited out of our mouth. Uh, we have been, at times entrusted ourselves to a type of partisan politics that is idolatrous. We have ignored and separated ourselves from each other in ways that do not correspond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the list and the sins go on and on. We are much like Old Testament Israel, though we have been given great privilege and great honor through the grace of Jesus. Nevertheless, we have not always 
responded to this grace in a way that corresponds to God's glory. And we have built new dividing walls of hostility. And when we do that, we deny or shrug off the cross of Christ as if it were not a big deal. And so we need to be humbled. And part of Advent is a time to let ourselves be humbled. John Stott puts it this way. He says this, quote, we need to get the failures of the church on our conscience and we need to feel the offense to Christ into the world, which these failures are. And we need to weep over the credibility gap between the church's talk and the church's walk. We need to repent of our readiness to excuse or even condone our failures. And we need to determine to do something about it. I wonder if anything is more urgent today for the honor of Christ and for the spread of the gospel than that the church should be and should be seen to be what by God's purpose and Christ's achievement it already is, a single new humanity, a model of human community, a family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their father and love each other, and the evident dwelling place of God by his spirit. Only then will the world believe in Christ as peacemaker, and only then will God receive the glory due to his name. Friends, all of this should humble us to Christ. But all of this should also give us hope. Why? Because friends, Jesus's advent is a mission that will not fail. We fail, but Jesus doesn't. You know, the central command in this reading is simply remember. Remember how far each of us was from Christ. If you belong to Christ, there was a time when you weren't and you were far from Christ. Don't forget that. And don't forget how Christ advented towards you and sought you out and brought you to himself. Don't forget the cost of the reconciliation which Christ purchased for you. Don't forget all the hostility that Jesus conquered through his coming and through his death and resurrection. And then as you remember all of that, then consider this. If Jesus advented into the middle of such hostility back then and such hostility in your life to reconcile you to God, then you can be confident that Jesus will not shrink back from the hostilities we face in our own day. You and I are daunted by the hostilities around us because they're bigger than we are. But don't you dare imagine that Jesus is daunted by them. And if you feel Christ bringing you to a place of humility, and if we as a church feel humbled before Christ for our failures, then we can also have hope because that can be a sign when the church is humbled that Jesus Christ is coming and preaching peace to us. Peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. Some of us are far off and we have not yet come to Christ. And Jesus Christ today says, Come to me and I will give you a peace that you cannot achieve. And to others of us, we are near to Christ. We have walked with him for a long time, but nevertheless, we are humbled under our own sin yet again. But even then, Jesus Christ says to us, my peace I give you, my peace I leave with you. And therefore, you can be confident that Jesus wants to advent yet again and always continually to bring his peace right into the hell of our present hostilities. So take hope, be humbled, but take hope and look at Jesus and wait for him in this season. And he will show himself to be the perfect peacemaker. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. 
Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.